You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is for such a time as this, Episode Nine, with Daniel Pell. It's so good to be here at Amazing Discoveries here in Canada, and uh, we are engaged in a series here entitled "For Such a Time as This." We have already had some exciting journeys in Scripture in different themes and topics, and tonight our topic is compromise and calamity. We're going to look at the great controversy that is being that is taking place even before our very eyes in this world, and that has taken place over thousands of thousands of years、um, in this earth and in this universe. The great controversy revolves about ver- around various themes, and one of those themes is about worship, and it is connected to our understanding of God. And in this presentation, what we want to do is we want to examine an ancient story that is repeating on a worldwide scale in our time, a story revealing the intense war revolving around worship and God's unchangeable character. And so, our title is a compromise and calamity. We're going to look at worship, true worship versus false worship, and I believe it will be a very inspiring、um, journey in Scripture. And so, I hope you have your Bibles with you. Before we open our our Bibles, we're going to have a word of prayer and invite God's Spirit to be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together here again, and we ask for your Spirit to be with us. We pray that you will guide us into your truth and also into the topic of worship and. True versus false worship, Lord. We see around us so much happening, and we want to know what is from you and what is not from you. And your word reveals; it gives us spiritual discernment, and we long for that discernment tonight. So we pray for you to be with us, for you to guide us, and for you to instruct us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. This is a book that we have visited on many an occasion already in this series. And in Revelation, we read about、uh, worship. We read about、um, a power that is taking the very place of God. This antichrist system, this antichrist power that claims the worship of. Of the people in this earth, and yet at the same time in the Book of Revelation, we have the power of God put on display and a call to worship the Creator and to worship our Redeemer. Truly, the topic of worship we find in the Book of Revelation much revolves around this very theme in this book. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter thirteen. We're not going to study this chapter tonight, but I just want you to take notice of a verse that is found in this chapter. I want you to look at verse fifteen, Revelation chapter thirteen and verse fifteen. It's talking about this beast power, this false system that has set itself up in the very place of Christ. And in verse fifteen, we read, "He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed." So when it comes to worship in the last days, worship in an end time setting, it's not just about 
preference. It's not just about like deciding the color of your wallpaper in your room. This has to do with a life and death issue. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation reveals this as it, uh, it, it pulls back the curtains and it reveals these final events. And this power, this beast power that comes to world dominion, uh, world dominance in the end of time, enforces people to worship him. And if they do not worship him, they will find themselves um, in danger of losing their lives. So worship is not just a matter of preference. It is really a life and death issue as we see from the book of Revelation. In the very next chapter, in Revelation chapter 14, there is a powerful and beautiful, compelling call to worship, not this beast power, not this man-made system of worship, but to worship God himself. Take notice of Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 and 7. The Bible says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. There is a call in Revelation to worship the God of creation, to worship the one that spoke and brought everything into existence, to worship the one that stooped down and with his own hands formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed his own breath, and man became a living soul, to worship the one that thought of you and brought you into existence. This is the one that is to be worshipped, to whom our allegiance belongs, to whom our loyalty belongs. And we see here in the book of Revelation, not only a revelation of the true God that is to be worshipped, but also a revelation of this false system, this false religious system that sets himself up as Christ and that is claiming the worship of Christ. And so looking at the topic of worship, which we want to talk about tonight, it is really a topic that is of great importance specifically in a last day setting, in an end time setting. We take the book of Revelation and really throughout the pages of this book, we see this topic coming back and back over and over again. Really, um, in the last days, every single person will have to make a decision who they worship. Will they worship the God that created them, that redeemed them, that purchased them, that we belong to, that we have been reconciled unto through Jesus Christ? Or will we worship the one that has set himself up as Christ, that is seemingly standing in the place of Christ, but in reality is not Christ. We looked earlier at Revelation chapter 13 and how this very power uh, revealed in this chapter is counterfeiting the very works of Jesus. This power, this beast, comes up out of the water. It rains for 42 months. It receives a deadly wound, and then the deadly wound is healed. Well, Jesus, he came up out of the waters of bat from, from after he was baptized, and he ministered for three and a half years or 42 months. He received a deadly wound, but that deadly wound was healed when he resurrected from the grave. And so you see, the, the works of Jesus are counterfeited, and if we are not careful Bible students, if we're not careful, carefully searching the pages of Scripture and the pages of the book of Revelation, we will easily find ourselves deceived. And we will find ourselves worshiping something or someone that has, has not redeemed us, has not created us, and does not have ultimately our best in mind.
And so I believe this topic of worship in a last day setting is something that's crucial. It's something imperative. It's something that each and every Bible student should look into for themselves to know that we are worshiping the true God, that we're worshiping the one that has created us and redeemed us, and the one that has a purpose and a plan for our lives far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And so what we're going to do in tonight's presentation is we're going to go back into the past. We're going, to back to, we're going to go back to an ancient story in the Old Testament, an ancient story about a king that turned away from God and led his people into false worship. And we're going to take that story and we're going to parallel it with what is going on today in our world. Many times we see that Christians and Christianity as a whole has deviated from the plain path of truth and is teaching the commandments of man rather than the teachings of God. And sad to say, some of the historic stories of the past where sin entered among God's, amongst God's people are being repeated before our very eyes. But for us not to fall into that trap, for us to remain faithful to God no matter what, we need to study these stories, study the parallels, and for us to be rooted and grounded in God's Word so that we are aware of Satan's devices, and more importantly, aware of the call that God has on our lives. So I invite you at this point to turn to this ancient story, and it's found in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings, and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. It's the story of King Jeroboam. And Jeroboam came into the picture shortly after King Solomon died. And I want you to take notice of this story of how he became king and what exactly happened. And so we're going to pick it up, pick up the story to get a little bit of the background here in chapter 11. And here we pick up the story while Solomon is still living, the great king of Israel. And he led the people away from God by some very sad decisions that he made to unite himself with the nations around him. And the anger of the Lord was, 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 was rose against Solomon for what he had done. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 11 the following. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. And then he continues to say in verse 12, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So a message from the Lord comes to Solomon. And King Solomon hears that the kingdom is going to be taken away from him. It's not going to happen in his days, but it's going to happen in the days of his son. But not the entire kingdom is going to be uh, taken away from him. Remember that there were uh, more than one tribe in Israel. There, as a matter of fact, there were 12 tribes. And so only 10 tribes will be taken away. And we read about how this happens as we continue in this story. Take notice of verse 29, 1 Kings chapter 11, and drop down to verse 29 and take notice of what happens. The Bible says, Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahiah the Shilonite met him on the way and he had clothed himself with a new garment and the two were alone in the field. 
Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. So take notice of this. A prophet comes and meets with a man by the name of Jeroboam. Now, the prophet takes off this garment that he has on him, and he tears it into 12 pieces. And Jeroboam must have been amazed at what the prophet was doing and wondering what the, all of this meant. Remember that there were 12 tribes in Israel. And so he tears it up in 12 pieces, and then he gives 10 pieces of that cloth, of that raiment, he gives to Jeroboam as a prophecy that 10 tribes were going to belong to him. He was going to become king of 10 tribes. Now, take notice how the story continues here. 1 Kings chapter 11, and drop down to verse 40. Verse 40. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam, Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt. You see, Jeroboam heard about what had happened, and he was enraged. He thought, oh, this Jeroboam is going to take the kingdom from, him, from me? And so he sought to kill him, but Jeroboam escaped. The Bible says that shortly after that, Solomon died, and Jeroboam comes back, and he is made king in Israel. Now, how did all this happen? Well, um, the son of Solomon was by a, a man by the name of Rehoboam. And you, you shouldn't get mixed up between these two kings. Their names are very similar. The son of Solomon is called Rehoboam. And then we have Jeroboam, the one that received those 10 pieces of raiment, the prophecy regarding him being king of Israel. Now, the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, became king when Solomon died. And yet he was a very fierce king, a very strict king, oppressing the people. And when Jeroboam came back from Egypt and they were being oppressed by Rehoboam, 10 of the tribes, 10 of the 12 tribes, they said, hey, we're not going to stick up with this. We're not going to remain under Rehoboam. As a matter of fact, we're going to make Jeroboam our king. And this is the time that the nation of Israel was divided. And so from this time forward, we have what we call the northern kingdom and we have the southern kingdom. See, David was king of entire Israel, and Solomon was king of the entire Israel. But then when, when Solomon's son became king, Rehoboam, that was when the division of the kingdoms took place. And so Rehoboam remained king in the south, and Jeroboam becomes the king of the north, and he has the ten tribes under him, just like the prophet had predicted. Now, the sad story is that when you continue to read through the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, you read about the story of the kings both, of the southern, of, both in the south, Judah, and in the north. Now, it goes a little bit up and down as to sometimes there are good kings, sometimes there are bad kings. But the sad story about the northern kingdom is it was really downhill all the way. And Jeroboam was the one that changed and altered the form of worship in his kingdom that led to this decline of spirituality and ultimately to the loss of identity of God's people. And they were carried away into captivity. The southern king, in the southern kingdom, there were good kings and bad kings, and it was kind of like a roller coaster ride. But when you look at the northern kingdom, basically it was downhill all the way. And who put them on that track? It was the very first king they had. It was King Jeroboam. As a matter of fact, let's look at a couple of verses here as to the consequences of the decisions that Jeroboam made and the worship style that he introduced into the land. 
Turn with me to 1 Kings, you're still there, and turn to chapter 15. We're just going to look at a couple of the consequences and results of Jeroboam's reign. 1 Kings chapter 15, and look at verse 25. 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 25. It says, Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. So here it's talking about the son of Jeroboam, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not walk in the ways of the Lord. And then it says that he walked in the ways of his father, Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. So there was something that Jeroboam did, some course that he took that caused the kings that came after him to walk in his ways and to depart even more and more and more from the God of Israel. Now, as you continue here in the story, look at verse 32 of the same chapter, 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 32. It says, And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha the son of Ahijah became king over all Israel in Tirzah and reigned 24 years. And now look at verse 34. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. And so we're seeing that over and over again, a new king comes and a new king comes, but they walk in the very same ways as Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. If you look at chapter 16 and verse 1 and 2, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hananiah and Basha, saying, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and have made my people Israel sin to promote, provoke me to anger with their sins. Over and over again, they're walking in the ways of Jeroboam. In verse 25, it says, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. And verse 26 says, For he walked in all the ways of who? Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. It's a sad story of how the northern kingdom, after they separated from the southern kingdom, the, king that, that, the first king that they had was King Jeroboam. And instead of leading the people into a reformation, into a revival, he led them into sin. And the kings that came afterward, afterwards, they walked in his footsteps. What was it that Jeroboam did that caused the kingdom to decline in a spiritual manner so rapidly? What was it that Jeroboam introduced that caused the people to turn away from the living God? He introduced a new style of worship. And I believe that as we look closely at this story, it is an, it is an incredible, we can draw incredible parallels with what we are even seeing in Christianity today as there is a decline in spirituality and there tends to be a change in the very way we worship. Now go back to chapter 12 and let's read about what Jeroboam did. First Kings chapter 12 and we're going to begin in verse 25. Take notice of 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, 
Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me, and they will go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So there's fear in the heart of the king that if they will go and worship in Jerusalem, which was situated in the south, that they would probably, their, their allegiance and their loyalty would go back to the king of the south and his life would be in danger. And so because of that, because of fear that is now in his heart of losing his kingdom and losing the subjects of his kingdom, he changes the worship. Now take notice as we carry on to read here, as we carry on in the story. In verse 28, it says the following. Therefore, so because of this fear in his heart, therefore the king asked advice and he made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Verse 29. And he set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a what? Became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests over every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. What a sad story that Jeroboam, deviated from the path of the Lord and because of fear in his heart to lose the subjects of his kingdom as they would go and worship in Jerusalem as God had uh, called them to do he introduces a new style of worship and he builds two calves of gold and he says to the people this is your God this is the God that has delivered you absolutely tragic and yet I believe that these changes that Jeroboam made in the worship in Israel are changes that we even see before our very eyes. I want to look at a couple of things that characterize the worship program of Jeroboam. What were the changes that Jeroboam made to introduce this worship of the golden calf? Number one, Jeroboam was motivated by fear rather than love. Jeroboam was motivated by fear rather than love. Look again there at verse 28, 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 28. It says, Therefore the king asked advice and made two calves of gold and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Why did he do that? Why, was, why did he ask advice and Certainly, this was not the advice of God. Why did he ask advice, probably of those uh, people that, that were more occupied with his uh, prominence and his position than the glory of God? And then he builds the calf. It was because there was something going on in his heart. According to verse 26 and 27, listen to what it says. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up and offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. There is fear in his heart. Fear motivated this worship, this new worship style. I want you to catch that. Fear motivated this new worship style. He was afraid to lose his people, and so he builds, he makes a golden calf so that the people will not go to Jerusalem to worship, 
They will not go to Judah to worship, but they will stay there and he will have control. He will remain king. So it is fear that, that motivated rather than love. Whenever worship is motivated by fear rather than love, then we are starting a downward track. And isn't that happening even in our midst today? There are many churches that will imply certain styles of worship. And those certain styles of worship are motivated by fear because they believe if they don't do it, some person is going to leave the church. Some young people, some young person is going to walk out. Someone's going to leave. And so there's a fear of losing people. And so a new worship style is introduced. Isn't this exactly what is going on here in the story? and repeating itself in our very midst in Christianity today, a fear not based on uh, the, the motivation, not based on truth, not based upon what does the word of God say and teach, but based upon fear of losing members in the church. Christianity is failing many because it is trying to, in, it is trying to arouse emotions and arouse a worship that is based on on, on, on what people want, but not necessarily always upon what people need. Just think about it. When God built the sanctuary or gave instruction to build the sanctuary in the wilderness, God did not ask Moses how he wanted to worship. God did not ask the people of Israel how they wanted to worship and kind of did a survey or a poll to see what their interests were so that he could accommodate for them. No, the Bible tells us in the book of Exodus that God revealed the pattern on the mount and that Moses, after that pattern, built the sanctuary. And everything around the sanctuary revolved around the character of God and the worship of God. God gave the instructions. Man received those instructions. And when they received those instructions they would worship in spirit and in truth and they would be empowered by that worship they would they would be moved by that worship and that was exactly what God wanted to do for them my friends whenever we step away from the blueprint of God whenever we step away from the plan of God whenever we remove ourselves from the Bible and from the scriptures and we start asking the counsel of those around us like Jeroboam did and we institute a worship that is motivated by fear of losing people rather than representing what is truth we are on a downward track and this is happening in Christianity today it is happening on a wide scale in many different churches and the call that the word of God brings to us as a call of revival and reformation, it is to step back into God's blueprint. It is to step back into God's plan. God has a worship that will be so powerful, so life-changing, so, transform tra so transformational, if that's a word, and he's going to give that to us. He's going to impart that to us so that we can, again, experience what we have always what we always should have experienced because we are losing the very blessings that God has in store for us when we start altering and changing the very things he has given to us when the instruction of God is followed there's a great great blessing and when God gives us a blueprint when he gives us a pattern and we step into that we will experience the power 
of God revealed in our life, revealed in our worship, and we will be drawn closer to him. We will see more of who he is. His character will be put on display, and we will be able to behold him, and by beholding him, we will become changed. You see, worship really ultimately has to do with beholding a picture of God. False worship is altering the picture of God so that we're not no longer beholding a true God, but a God that we've created in our own minds. And this is exactly what is going on here in the case of Jeremiah. And so the first point that I want to make um, in this presentation is that Jeroboam was motivated by fear rather than love. He was motivated by fear rather than love. And fear is really an expression of a lack of faith. Remember that this was not the first time that Israel worshipped a golden calf. As a matter of fact, when I read this story here in 1 Kings chapter 12, I thought to myself, how could it possibly happen that they worshipped a golden calf? I mean, of all things, couldn't they be a little bit more original? I mean, at least worship a golden, you know, dog or chicken or whatever. A golden calf? I mean, this is right from history. I mean, this, this happened before, right? There is a story in the Old Testament where the people of God worshipped a golden calf, and that was after they came out of Egypt. They came into the wilderness. Moses, he went on to the mountain and communed with God on the mountain, and he stayed away for a couple of days. And they they said, you know, what's happened to Moses? He's gone. What are we going to do? And and they built a golden calf and started worshipping it. And Moses comes back down from the mountain And I want you to take notice of this dialogue, this conversation between Moses as he comes down, sees what is going on, and Aaron, which was his brother, and actually the one that was responsible for the people while he was gone, how he responds to this uh, worship of the golden calf. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. We'll be back in 1 Kings in just a moment. But turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 30, or 32 rather. Exodus 32 and verse 21. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 21. It's absolutely amazing. Moses comes down from the mount. And in verse 21, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Now look at the the answer of Aaron in verse 22. So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verse 24, and I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. Oh, really? Now, think about that. A little bit of a weak argument, isn't it? I mean, he got the gold, he put the gold in the fire, and he couldn't do anything about it. The, the calf just came out. You know, it's like, it's like you have your child, and, and, and he's been stealing the cookies and eating the cookies, and then you say, did you eat the cookies? And it's all on his mouth, and he says, no. You know, it's like Aaron is supposed to be the leader of God's people. He's supposed to be the one that gives spiritual direction. And well, while Moses is gone... Aaron falls in this weak moment and he lets the people build this, make this golden calf and worship it. And then we've pushed the fast forward button and we come throughout the, throughout the, uh, the, the, the years as the people of God entered into the promised land and they had the first king and the second king and then the division of the, of, of the kingdom ultimately in the days of Rehoboam and then we have Jeroboam becoming king of the north and he introduces what? 
a golden calf. There it is. It's back again. Can you imagine that day that Jeroboam introduced that new style of worship, that new worship? I can imagine that it was on a platform and maybe something was covering the golden calf and all the people were there in suspense as to what Jeroboam had come up with. What's going to happen? And he pulls back the curtain and there it is, the golden calf. And I'm thinking to myself, was there no one that was standing there looking at that golden calf and thinking to themselves, we've seen this before. We've seen this before. We know what's this. I, I remember this story of my grandfather. I remember the story of, of what happened um, to our forefathers in the wilderness. This was not the first time. And yet, there's no, there's no account of anyone resisting. As a matter of fact, the people started worshiping that calf. And not only did they start worshiping that calf, but they started on a downward spiral, a downward track that ultimately led them to lose their identity as God's people. They lost their identity completely. As a matter of fact, one king and then the next king and the next king, it just went downward and downward and downward until other nations around them, uh, brought them took them into captivity and we don't hear anything more from the northern kingdom. A sad story. God placed his love upon them. He wanted them to be the, deposit, the, the, the ones that would contain truth, but not only contain it, but expose it and bring it to the nations around them to be a light for the nations around them. Instead of being a light for the nations around them, they became a curse for the nations around them. And so Jeroboam is motivated by fear rather than love. But not only that, he also sought counsel in the wrong place. Look at what it says if we go back to the story there in 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings and chapter 12. And take notice of verse 28 once more. 1 Kings Chapter 12 and verse 28, it says, Therefore the king asked advice, and he made two calves of gold and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. So he's even accrediting to those golden calves the deliverance out of Egypt. Amazing. And how did it come so far? Well, it says that he asked advice. Well, certainly it was not the advice or counsel of God. Certainly he did not seek counsel from the Lord. Did you know that Jeroboam's name can be interpreted to mean the one who pleads the people's cause? Jeroboam, it means the one who pleads the people's cause. In other words, we could say a people pleaser. Now, in our postmodern world where customer is king, this fits very perfectly, doesn't it? And, and, and almost, it's almost like these kind of principles of, you know, customer is king has been brought into the back door of the church. And so what we find in churches and Christianity today, that it's more about what the people want than what the people need, right? And so what we're seeing is that Jeroboam pleading the people's cause, wanting to be a people pleaser, is bringing in a worship that accommodates to what the people really want. Because, yeah, it was actually quite tiresome to travel down to Jerusalem. It was actually a big requirement to have to go all the way to Jerusalem several times a year. And, you know, it was really actually quite messy when you had to bring a sacrifice. I mean, come on. Uh, why not just do it a little bit easier? Why not just build a golden calf? It looks good and uh, no, no blood, no messy blood, no sacrifices. And, and let's just worship this golden calf. It sounded good. It seemed good. He was pleading the people's cause, but he was going directly against the counsel of God. 
And what is happening today in Christianity, many times, sad to say, is a repetition of this very story. As we are removing the very foundation of Christianity, we are removing the very pillars of our faith, the very pillars of Scripture, so that we can accommodate for people that it's easy. So it's easy. So it's, you know, just relax, just enjoy, just have good emotions but not a sound faith that speaks to the mind and to the heart and the innermost needs of people. As a matter of fact, there's a verse. Uh, we're going to come back to our story in just a moment, but turn with me to the book of Isaiah. There's a fascinating scripture in the book of Isaiah, chapter 4 and verse 1. I don't know if you've, if you've seen this before. Isaiah, chapter 4, verse 1. Turn with me there. Listen to what the prophet says. Isaiah, and I, I believe he's speaking here. This is really prophetic, what he's saying here. Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1. I believe it's a picture of the very days in which we are living. Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1. Listen to what the prophet says. He says, In that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. Now, the first time I read that, I thought to myself, what is the pro what's wrong with the prophet? What's going on? What I could not understand what he's talking about. But, you know, when you start comparing Scripture with Scripture, I believe that this text is absolutely explosive when you start understanding it as to its meaning for us today. It says, in that day, and I believe that's the days in which we're living, seven women. Now, what is a, wo a woman in Bible prophecy? What does a woman represent in Bible prophecy? For those of you that have studied Bible prophecy, you will know that a woman represents a church. As a matter of fact, there are multi a multiplicity of scripture that we could use to uh, uh, undergird and underline that uh, teaching. Uh, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, you have this picture of Christ as the bridegroom and um, the church as the bride. Um, when Paul addressed the church of Corinth, in, um, uh, he said to the church of Corinth that they were a chaste virgin. In Ephesians chapter 5, you read about the relationship between husband and man, and it's compared between the, to the, to the um, relation between uh, Christ and his church. It's just all through Scripture. So a woman being a church, representing a church, it says, in that day, seven women. Now, the number seven in Scripture is a number of completion. Uh, we have six days that God created the world, and then the seventh day was the Sabbath. He completed everything. Seventh day was set aside as the Sabbath. Seven is a number that repeats um, and that, is, um, that we find uh, in many places in Scripture, and it's a number of completion. It's a number of fullness. And so we have seven women taking hold of one man. We have the fullness of Christianity, taking hold of one man. Now, Christianity all really, all these different denominations, they really uh, profess to follow one man. Who's that man again? Jesus Christ, of course. The one man that they all follow, Jesus Christ. All these different denominations, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, and, and the Bible, in Bible prophecy, it just joins it together and says, okay, seven women, one man, Jesus Christ, they're all, they're all holding on to Jesus Christ, and yet, what does the Bible say? It says, and in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man saying, we will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name 
to take away our approach. So we want your name, we want to have your name of being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but we don't want your apparel and we don't want your food. Now what is the food of Jesus? It's the Word of God, right? The, it's the teachings of Scripture. The Word of God is the food. It's like manna in the wilderness. It's the, it's the Scriptures. It says, this is my flesh, the Word. And so we don't want the word, we don't want your teachings, we don't want your apparel. What's the apparel of Jesus? It's the righteousness, the robe of righteousness, the garments of salvation. We don't want your word, we don't want your righteousness and salvation, but we do want your name to take away our reproach. My friends, are we seeing this today? Are we seeing this today? It, and I, I'm not saying that, that it, of course there are faithful Christians, there are faithful ones that are, that are holding on to not only the name of Jesus, but that are partaking of his word and, and that are, that are um, covered in his righteousness. But sad to say, the majority of Christianity has failed because it has turned away from the very truth that God wants to give and is rather in is rather following in the, in the footsteps of Jeroboam, is rather uh, bringing worship styles into churches to accommodate for the people, for their senses and for their emotions and for their excitement, but not for their deep needs. My friends, there is a call in Scripture to stand upon the platform of truth. There is a call in Scripture of a movement, a generation that will not only take hold of the name of Christ, but will take hold of the character of Christ. That will not only take hold of the name and character of Christ, but that will be partakers of the word of God and that will wear the raiment that is given by Christ, the garment of salvation, the robe of righteousness. In the story of 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam not only was he motivated by fear rather than love, and not only did he seek counsel in the wrong place, but he also changed the object of worship. And I want to look at, at a moment, I want to look uh, with you at what that object was. We already read it. It was a golden calf. And yet there's, a, there's quite a lot of depth into, um, in the story and into the object um, of worship there. As you go back to 1 Kings chapter 12 to the story, we read about he, how he built not just one golden calf, but according to the story, how many golden calves did he build? He made two, exactly. He made two. Let's have a look at this in verse 29. In verse 29, 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 29. It says, And he, referring to King Jeroboam, set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. So two strategic points. He builds these golden calves and puts them in two places. And when you look on the map, uh, one of these places is more in the north and the other is more in the south. In other words, he is really, again, accommodating for the people so that they don't have to travel very far. So one uh, is for one region and another is for another region so that they can easily come and worship before these two golden calves. What is a golden calf for an object to worship? Now, we know the second commandment in the Ten Commandments. It says, thou shalt not make unto thee any, what? Graven image. Now, the second commandment is not primarily against the worship of false gods. This is really the first commandment. But it is rather opposed to the worship of the true God in a false way. Did you get that? 
So a, a false a, a worship of an idol is really misrepresenting the true God. It is really creating uh, God in an image that you have devised in your own mind. And that's exactly what we see in idol worship in the past. But idol worship is not just something of the past. Idol worship is really happening even today. Maybe not so much um, as to the bowing down to golden calves, but there are a lot of ways in which we can actually be involved in idol worship. Not idol worship of bowing down to a metal um, object, but idol worship in our very minds by misrepresenting the character of God and by by worshiping a God that we've created in our own minds, that we have carved out in our own minds. You can carve out an image of God, a false image of God, in your very mind and worship that. Um, there is a place in Scripture, in Jeremiah chapter 18, and you can, you can read that um, later on if you would like. In Jeremiah chapter 18, God says to Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house. And so Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house, and he's looking at the potter that is at work with the clay. And as the potter is at work in the with the clay, God says to Jeremiah, cannot I do to you as this potter does to the clay? Cannot I do to you as this potter does to the clay? In other words, God is representing himself in this illustration in Jeremiah chapter 18 as the potter and God's people are the what? The clay. Now think about this. God is the potter, man is the clay. And by the way, this is a picture of creation because in the beginning God, when he created man, he stooped down and he formed man of the dust of the earth and he breathed his own breath and man becomes a living soul. So he's the potter from the very beginning. He's the potter all the way through the scriptural story. Now God forms us, molds us, shapes us, he fashions us into his image. God said, let us make man in our image. That's what he said in Genesis. And then he creates man in his image. This is the picture that, that is to continue. But what has happened, my friends, is that that picture has been twisted around. And now man has become the potter and God has become the clay. And so someone will say, um, you know, if you would ask the question, like, what is your God like? And you would ask this question to 10 different people. You would take a little survey on the street. Um, downtown Vancouver, you would go and, and ask 10 different people, what is your God like? You might well get 10 different answers. Why? Because man has become the potter and God has become the clay. My God is like that. And then you ask someone else and he says, uh, my God is like this. And so we create God in our image instead of allowing God to create us in his image. And so the picture of the potter and the clay and the picture that God has given in scripture has been twisted upside down. And false worship is founded upon this false concept and understanding of the character of God. And so God being the potter and man being the clay is essential in true worship. And in order for us not to deviate from God's path, we as being clay must place ourselves in the hands of the potter. And we must ask God, God, mold me, shape me, fashion me, make me into your image. I want to, and as we study God's word, we have a revelation of who God is. God reveals to us who he is in scripture. And by beholding that, he is shaping us and fashioning us and changing us into his image. 
What false worship does is it changes that picture around and it says, well, you know, man decides what God is like. This is what my God is like and your God may be different and your God may be different again. And man has all their own opinions about what God is like and they fashion and make him into their image and by beholding that image, they become changed. Do you see the picture? It's clear. And what we see in the story of Jeroboam is that Jeroboam has taken upon himself to change the image of God. And he makes his image as a golden calf. Now, you might say again, well, you know, I don't worship a golden calf, but we can find ourselves in the temptation of carving out a false image of God in our very minds by having a wrong understanding about who he is. If we don't go back to scripture to, to gain our understanding of who God is, we are carving out an image, a false image of God in our hearts, in our minds. And we're worshiping that God and we're becoming changed by that God, but we're not becoming into the image of the biblical God, but we're changed into the image of a God that we have created ourselves. And that's exactly what is going on. And that's why the story here, the story of Jeroboam, is a story that is repeating itself on a worldwide scale. We are seeing golden calves in Christianity all around us. They might not be there on the stage as a golden object, but they are a misrepresentation of God, whether through preaching, through teaching, through man's teaching instead of God's teaching, through man's ways instead of God's ways, through man's worldliness and music instead of God's music, all these various ways of worship that are changing in our very midst are misrepresentations of the image of God and who he really is, and man is being changed by beholding it. And so the call of scripture and the call of God is to come back to really who God is, to study his character, so that when we, when we behold him, we become changed by him. There's this powerful scripture. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. This is one of my, one of my favorite scriptures in, in, in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Listen to what it says. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's like looking into a mirror. It's like looking at the glory of God. The glory of God is the character of God. We are looking at the character of God. And as we are looking at the character of God, as we're looking at the glory of God, something inevitably has to happen, and it will happen naturally. And that is that we become transformed by that which we behold. We behold God, we behold his word, we behold his character, and it changes us from glory to glory to glory. We are being transformed day by day. We are being renewed by the Holy Spirit. A change is taking place. We are beholding the very character of God. And what is happening? That which is happening is what happened at creation. God made man in his image. That is the very purpose of man to be made in the image of God. And now God wants to do that today as you behold God's word, as you behold his character. You become changed by beholding that. And so Satan knows that. Satan knows that very well. And he looks at that and he says, okay, let me devise a way so that they can create another picture of God so that they will be changed by that picture, which is a false picture. And ultimately, it's a picture that the devil creates. My friends, it's so serious the issue of worship in an end time setting is not about preference. It's not about taste. It's not about emotional movements. It's about truth. 
It's about the pillars that God has laid down for us for our best will. And you know, true happiness, true joy, true inspiration and motivation comes by that beholding of the image of God because there's nothing better. This is what we're made for. This is how God has created us. God has created us with a longing for himself. God has created in us. God has put something of himself in us that longs for him, that wants him. We know that we're made for something more than this world can offer. We know that God has carved out in us eternity so that we long for it, that we seek after it. And when we find it, there's nothing that can satisfy us but that. And so God has, has put that in us. And so when we behold him through scripture, we are doing what we are created to do. And yet we are seeing so much around us a false image of God, a false picture of God. When you look at the Old Testament and the times that we find idol worship prominent amongst God's people, it's a sad picture. God warns over and over again through the Old Testament prophets what would be the consequences of them walking after the idols, of, of worshiping uh, the idols. As a matter of fact, sometimes even God, in a way to arouse their attention, would even show the futility and the, 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 the just outright craziness of worshiping an, an idol. Because when God created the world, he didn't say, I'll make a tree in my image. He, the only thing that was made in the image of God was man. As a matter of fact, there's this story in Isaiah, turn with me there, Isaiah 44, about a man that goes into a forest, cuts down a tree, and he forms, out of that tree, he forms an idol. And look at the way that the prophet and the Lord through the prophet talks about this event. Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah chapter 44, and beginning in verse 14, look at the picture here. It says, he cuts down sitters for himself, he takes the cypress and the oak, he secures it for himself among the trees of the forest, he plants a pine and the rain nourishes it, and then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself, yes, he kindles it and bakes bread, indeed, he makes a god and worships it, he makes it a carved image and falls down to it. Verse 16, he burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a rose and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. Can you, can you see the picture before you? The man goes out and he cuts down the tree. He measures it up and he cuts it in half. Half of it he used to, 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 to burn so that he can stay warm. He cooks his meals with that fire. And with the other half, he carves it out and makes it into a god and worships that god. And inevitably, there's a question that has to be asked, and that is, how does he know that he didn't burn the wrong half? Right? He could have burned his god. I mean, what God is doing here is he's showing the futility of idol worship. It makes no sense. You cannot make God into the image of a tree because God said, there's only one place where I want to see myself and that's in man. That is in man. That's the only place I want to see myself. I'm going to make man in my image. When it came to the sixth day of creation, God said, I'm going to, I'm going to do something special. I'm going to make man in my image. And for man to make God in an image of anything else is degrading because man, we are created to bear the reflection of the divine. We are to reflect the character of God. God wants to live in us. He wants to put himself on display in our lives. It's something so awesome, such a high privilege that we cannot even comprehend. 
And false worship is turning the picture upside down. It's saying, okay, you have the potter and the clay. Let's be the potter ourselves. Let's take things in our own hands. We'll, we'll form God in our image instead of allowing God to form us in his image. And this is what's happening. Jeroboam, he was motivated by fear rather than love. He took counsel, not from the Lord, but from those around him. He made two casts of gold. He changed the object of worship. But take notice of something else he did in the story if you turn back to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12 and look at verse 28. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 28. It says, Therefore the king, he asked advice and made two calves of gold and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And then verse 29 says, He set one up in Bethel, the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made shrines on the high places. And he made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Take notice of that. He did what? He made shrines of the high places and he made priests from every class of people who were not the sons of Levi. Not only did Jeroboam change the object of worship, but he also changed the ministers of worship. Jeroboam ordained who he wanted to have in his new worship program. This new approach must have, seemed, must have been very attractive because it promoted equality, justice, fairness. Hey, come on, why should only the Levites get to, get to you know, work in the temple? Why should the Levites only uh, do these religious rites? Uh, he ordained his own people in his own program. It seemed to promote equality, justice, and fairness. The old tradition seems culturally conditioned. Why only the Levites? And yet this new move caused the uncalled people to enter into ministry. It caused uncalled people to become involved in his new worship. A paycheck became more and a title becomes more important than the calling and purpose of God. And we're seeing that today too. There are people that are entering into ministry that do not have the calling of God upon their lives, but they're doing it because it's a job. As a matter of fact, my wife and I, we were visiting um, different people that had um, been following along in a, in a Bible course that, we were, uh, that our ministry has put on. And, and so we came into a lot of different homes. And I remember one home we came into, it was, um, uh, I believe it was a Lutheran priest, if I remember correctly. And uh, he had decided to do the, this course. And uh, so we had a we had a talk with him, and it wasn't very interesting uh, to get to know him. And then uh, we came to talk about, for some reason, we came to talk about baptism. And uh, we were talking about how we biblically believe that uh, baptism is an immersion. Um, you, you go all the way into the water uh, because it really symbolizes a death to self and the death that Jesus entered into. And then you come up out of the water, which, which resembles, of course, the resurrection or Christ now in you. And so um, as the Bible teaches, we believe in immersion into the water baptism. And then he said, yeah, well, you know, it makes sense, but I, um, I work as a Lutheran priest, and I, I, I don't do that. Um, we just, we, we sprinkle babies. And so we asked him the question, do you see from the Bible, um, you know, can you legitimately do that from a biblical standpoint? And he said, no, no, I can't. But, uh, but then he said, but it's my job, and uh, this is what I get paid for, and so this is what I do. 
Um, sadly, there are a lot of ministers that think that way, that think that what they do is a job, and so it doesn't really matter. It's, it's, it's man's direction, and so this is what I do. When ministry becomes a job, when it just becomes based on a title or a paycheck or the directions of man, it loses the power of God. It loses the power of what God intended it to have because God is not occupied with titles or paychecks. He's occupied with the winning of souls and he's occupied with the spreading of the truth of his word. Amen? And so what you see so clearly in this story of Jeroboam is that Jeroboam is not really occupied with God's direction as to which tribe was set aside for holy purpose and for a holy work in the temple, the Levites. He's occupied with his own prestige and power and influence. And so he just chooses whoever he wants. He just chooses, oh, you're my buddy? Okay, you, you lead out in the next song service. Or you, I happen to like you. You lead out in the next worship service of the golden calf. And so he's choosing his own people, people that have not received the call of God. And sadly enough, we're seeing that in Christianity today, there, there are many that will come into ministry. I've even heard it gone so far that there are literally, there are priests in the country where I live in Norway. There are priests that don't believe in God. They don't believe in God. They say it outrightly. And yet they fill that position of a priest. I mean, where have we come? We have come to repeat the very story of Jeroboam. We have far, we are, the spirituality is so low in, 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 in the world today because it is no longer a calling, but it has become just a position. And this is exactly what happened in the days of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, he appointed his own people. There's one last change or characteristic that I want you to take notice of in this story, which is absolutely, when I, when I read this, it, it just it blew me away. It's incredible. Look at verse 32 and 33, the last two verses of the chapter. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 32 and 33. Listen, look, look at what Jeroboam ultimately does. Look at where this ultimately leads to, this kind, of, this kind of worship. It says, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burnt incense. There is another change that Jeroboam introduced, and that is the change in the time of worship. Now, it says here that he ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. Now, you go back and you study the feasts in Israel, and you will find out that that feast that he changed was originally on the seventh month. And so what Jeroboam does, he says, well, what, what, what? There's a feast on the seventh month that God has ordained? You know what? I'm just going to change the time of worship. I'm going to change it from the seventh to the eighth. Now, Bible students, you should wake up by this time. We know that according to Bible prophecy, according to Daniel and Revelation, the Bible predicts that in the end of time, there's going to be a system of worship, system of false worship, that is going to attempt to change 
times, and laws. There's going to be a system of worship that is going to change from the seventh day Sabbath, the fourth commandment of God, and replace it with man's day, the eighth, or the first, the Sunday. Sabbath to Sunday, this change that when you go back in history and you look at when that change occurred, and you will find out that this was because of political reasons. It was not, be, it was not founded upon truth. And it was for reasons that connect very strongly with this story, to accommodate for the people. My friends, when you look at what is going on in the world today, there is a departure from truth and a departure from the commandments of God. And God said in the commandments of regarding the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, he said, remember to keep the Sabbath holy. Remember. It's a day of blessing. And by the way, Sabbath is really revealing true worship in spirit and truth. When we worship the Creator on the seventh day that He has set aside, we are worshiping our Maker and our Redeemer, and this is the seal that God places upon us as His people to recognize us, to identify us as His. And so what we're seeing in the end of time, what's going on, is that this power, this false religious power says, He looks at it and He sees and He knows that the Sabbath is that which characterizes God's people and them being changed into the image of God. And He says, okay, I have my own image, I have my own day. And the time of worship is changed. Just like in the story, Jeroboam says, seventh month, I'll change it into the eighth month. Is it important how we worship? Yes. Is it important who we worship? Absolutely. Is it important when we worship? Yes, it is. You see, one change, this didn't happen overnight. <laughs> Jeroboam was smart enough not to do this overnight, but it was a gradual change. He, change. he changes the object of worship. He changes the place of worship. He changes the ministers of worship. He changes this and he changes that, and ultimately he changes the time of worship. My friends, when we see Christianity at large and the churches around us, we see them beginning in this path of Jeroboam. We see them being motivated by fear rather than love. We see them changing things that we know are not rooted and grounded in Scripture. We see them changing the very teachings of Jesus. We see them creating a new blueprint that is not based on the pattern that God has given us. We see them moving in the direction of Jeroboam. And ultimately, what we're going to see is a change in the very time of worship. And my friends, in order for us to come back to the heart of worship, in order for us to come back to the central part of worship upon which everything else revolves, it must revolve upon Scripture. This is it. This is the, this is the center of gravitation. This pulls everything towards itself. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God upon which we must build our lives. It's the only thing that we have been given as a revelation of the character of God. Our worship must revolve around the word of God. The sad reality is that the worship of Jeroboam revolved around Jeroboam. It revolved around his image of God. And sad to say many times today, the worship of many is revolving around a false image that has been created, a false image of God that has been painted. And the only way to counteract that is to put on display God's character through his word so that we can see him, behold him, and be changed by him. I want to close tonight on a, on a, on a, on a, on a good, with a good story. This, this, the story of Jeroboam is a sad story that is being repeated around us. But there is another king, and I just want to shortly look at this king. 
that brought revival and reformation to Israel, that turned the current of things towards God and not away from God. And I want to close on this note. I want you to turn to the book of 2 Chronicles. And this is regarding the king. This is the story of King Josiah. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And look at the story of this king. The story of king bringing revival to Israel. 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and beginning in verse 1. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. What a blessing to hear those words. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now take notice of verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. See, not only is he bringing revival, he's also bringing reformation. Sometimes we're so excited about revival, but revival has to go hand in hand with reformation. And so here this king, not only is he pointing people to God, but he's also removing the false images. And then verse 4, it says, They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars which were above them he cut down, and the wooden, uh, and the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images he broke in pieces, and made dust of them, and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He is, making, he is bringing a reformation into the land. Now, if you go down in the same chapter to verse 8, look at what it says. 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and verse 8. In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, uh, Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahas, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. You see, for many years, the temple had been neglected. The temple was, was broken down, and so he starts repairing the temple. He brings reformation into the land. He repairs the temple. Take notice what happens as they're repairing the temple. This is, this is incredible, verse 14 and 15. They, you can imagine the scene now for a moment. They're walking into this temple, and there are, there are spider webs here. The things are, oh, things are dirty over here. Things have been fallen down here. It's just a mess. And so they start cleaning up the temple. They start restoring the temple. And as they're cleaning up and restoring the temple, take notice what happens in verse 14. It says, now when they brought out, verse 13, uh, it says, where over the burden bearers and where the overseers of all the work and any kind of service and some of the Levites were scribes, officers and gatekeepers. Now when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Now, as they are cleaning out the temple, what happens? Helkiah the priest finds the original copy of the writings of Moses in the temple. How ironic that the book of the Lord was lost in the house of the Lord. Can you imagine? And they find it. They find it again. And they, they, there's this great rejoicing that goes on. Well, before there's a real re- great rejoicing, there's actually first um, really a sense of, of solemnity that comes upon them. It says that the king, he, 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 he was amazed. Look at what it says in verse uh, 19 in the same chapter. It says, thus it happened when the king heard the words of the Lord, Lord that he tore his clothes. He couldn't, he couldn't imagine. He couldn't believe it. There was this moment of humility of seeking the Lord because the book had been found. The book of the law had been found. Can you imagine? In the house of the law, in the house of the Lord, the book had been found. Could it be that sometimes this book 
is lost in the house of the Lord? Could it be that sometimes even within the church, we have to look to find a Bible? Or we have to look to hear the words of truth? Could it be that sometimes this book is, is hidden in the very house of the Lord? In order for us to receive and to experience revival and reformation, we must find the book. We must open the book. We must study the book. We must behold the picture of God so we can be changed by it, so that we can experience a revival and reformation in our midst. I, I read this quote earlier in this series, but I want to repeat it. It says the following, Christianity started in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and it became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and it became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture. It moved to America and became an enterprise. My friends, Christianity has gathered a lot of baggage on its way. It started as a fellowship revolving around the Word of God. It moves to these various countries and various places. It becomes a philosophy. It becomes a culture. It becomes an institution. It becomes an enterprise. And my friends, we must go back to where it began. Amen? We must come back to what it really revolves around, and that is the Word of God and the Word of God alone. Let's find the book again. Let's find it, and let's study it, and let's be transformed by it. That's my prayer for you. How many of you want to have that experience? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are encouraged. We are challenged. Um, we look around us, and we see that these stories that we have studied this evening are repeating on a worldwide scale. They're repeating in our very midst. Lord, we are seeing the movements that reigned in the days of Jeroboam being repeated. We are also encouraged by the story of Josiah. And Lord, we want to find your words once more. We want to find your character revealed in your word. We want to look at you. We want to behold you. We want to be changed by you. We want, Lord, to be a people that will be made into your image. Please, Lord, may you be the potter. Help us to place ourselves in your hands. Please fashion us, make us, mold us back into what you have always designed us to be and wanted us to be and purposed us to be. Lord, we lay ourselves into your hands tonight, thanking you that you can do far beyond we can even ever imagine. And Lord, please... Do a work in us that we cannot do for ourselves. And make us to be that people that can put you and your character on display to the world around us. Thank you so much for granting us your blessing tonight. And continue to be with us. For this we ask in your name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.